Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, November 12th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Today, we congratulate our own Carl Cannon for winning the long-running bet with our fearless leader, Tom Bevan, over whether the president's infrastructure bill would pass. It did. With help from 13 House Republicans, and Carl will soon be enjoying two bottles of fine wine. You're all invited to raise a glass with him on Monday when President Biden has promised to sign the legislation into law. Some think this is the reboot the administration needs. The poll numbers are, however, quite terrible for the president right now. So what will it take to turn things around? Also, the climate summit in Glasgow is uh, scheduled to close today. China and the U.S. signed an agreement on coal, but progressives are already complaining that not enough was accomplished. And the investigation into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has run into an entirely predictable roadblock, which is that the former president is invoking executive privilege. The courts are now involved and things are slowing down. Joining me to discuss all this are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, and the victorious Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief for RCP. So, Tom, let's dive right in. This infrastructure bill passed. Uh, the Build Back Better bill is moving ahead, albeit in fits and starts. So have the Democrats turned the page here, and uh, is it smooth sailing from here on? Well, first, I would like to congratulate Carl Cannon. <laughs> I, I'm always gracious in defeat. But uh, I I am not sure that this is going to be the cure-all the Democrats have been looking for. In fact, you know, there have been three polls that have been taken since infrastructure passed on on Friday of Biden's approval rating. And two of them, he's actually gone down. So they're going to have to demonstrate in concrete ways how this is going to help the average American. I mean, the the big deal right now is inflation. We got terrible inflation numbers, the highest in 30 years, over 6% annualized rate. And everything's more expensive these days, and people are feeling that. And so the administration wants to say this will eventually help ease inflation. These are historic investments. Pete Buttigieg was at the White House press briefing earlier this week and said, look, this is not an immediate fix for things. This is a, a more of a historic investment. That's all well and good for the administration uh, to make that case. However, it is not going to help them in the short term and medium term in terms of uh, dealing with these inflationary pressures that are hitting every American all across this country. Well, Carl, Al Hunt uh, had a column this week, and he's, uh, it's on uh, RCP's front page. This is what he said. Here's the probable 2022 environment enactment of the most sweeping domestic legislation since the Great Society, a booming economy, and a normalized pandemic. This would put them, the Democrats, in better shape next November than it looks like last week, unless they screw it up. That, that's his view of things. So again, congratulations on your bet, but uh, how, how do you feel? Do you think uh, Al Hunt's right that uh, 2022, things will look a lot better for the Democrats than they do right now? Look, Al Hunt, said, you know, he says, okay, things should be good for Democrats if they don't screw it up. And he had pointed words for the, the woke progressives in the, uh, what are they, the squad or the progressive caucus, whatever they call it, you know, to, you know, people are not with you on open borders and defunding the police. Stop talking about it. Pretty sharp column. I, I liked it. He invoked Reagan era equipment. I don't think it was Reagan himself, but you know, hey, the deficit can Deficit is big enough to take care of itself. Moderates shouldn't focus just on the deficit spending so much and, and simmer down about that. 
he's asking for Democrats to behave in a more in a more strategic way uh, in terms of their reelection. But these are not you know ephemeral issues. These these progressives they ran against you know in in the case of Alexandria. Or, Casio Cortez, she ran against an entrenched Democrat to win office, and she did so because she really believes in progressivism as as it's defined in the uh, today. And this, this is not this is not her strat, this is not her tactics. This is her beliefs. And and the moderates are pointing; they're really worried about inflation, uh, and they think uh, runaway government spending is one of the factors in it. Look, Tom said six percent inflation. It may be worse than that because. The, the October numbers are what freaked everybody out. It was almost a full percent in October alone. Uh, gasoline prices have gone up 50% since Joe Biden took, took office. And the things that are going up, their ho- housing prices are increasing, energy costs, food. These are necessities. These aren't luxuries. And the Democrats, they showed they can govern by passing an infrastructure bill. Look, that's the minimum of what Congress ought to do. And I don't give the Republicans any pass for not voting for it. I, I think that's absurd. But that's Congress doing its job. That you know, look, I'm happy to win our little bet, and Tom and I will drink that wine together, so there were never any great stakes involved. But <laughs> but but Andy, you're just hoping that means he'll buy drinkable wine. <laughs> well, he always does, to be honest. It's like a Christmas gift you get for someone else, but it's really for you. <laughs> yeah, I remember once I got my father when I was a little kid a baseball for Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Hint, he hint. Said, yeah, he said, well, who, "Who am I supposed to play catch with?" <laughs> That's that's when Tom and I bet balls away. There's an element to that. But Andy, I wanted to go back to this infrastructure. That's look, that's these guys showing up, punching the clock. That's what they ought to do. This other bill, I, I'm not sure it's going to pass. The it's they've called it human infrastructure. It's social spending. The individual elements of it, poll well. Uh, that's what Al Hunt's alluding to there. If they pass that, is that going to be a considered achievement? Off all the gains are wiped for working people are wiped out by inflation. You know the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, came out with this this jobs report and it was stunningly good news. Two hundred and thirty five thousand jobs added in August and September that hadn't been counted. And you know the the administration thought okay they were flying high and this is gonna they're now back on the road and this off year election is gonna be a blip. And then this hit this inflation thing and this was the issue that really undid Jimmy Carter and and got Americans beginning to question his basic competence was runaway inflation and the high interest rates that came with it. So I think that's what the Democrats fear the most. So two things to add. Number one, I would like to point out while I was gracious in defeat, Carl has not been gracious in going double or nothing with me on this social spending bill, whether it's going to pass Congress. Wait, wait, wait. I've been gracious. In Human victory. infrastructure, I been, Carl. I haven't been foolhardy in victory. I, haven't. <laughs> I just want to make that clear to all of our listeners that Carl is taking his wine and going home. Um, but like gas price is a perfect example, right? So the administration, their response to the issue of gas prices, well, there's not a lot we can do. And, and, uh, the deputy press secretary who was filling in for Jen Psaki this week said repeatedly from the podium, and Biden has said it also, we're studying this very carefully. We're watching this very carefully. But you know, Biden said in a town hall uh, last month, well, it's really up to the Saudis, you know, whether they're going to pump more oil. We, we begged OPEC plus, whatever they call it now, uh, to pump more oil, and they declined. Hey, Tom, Tom, can I, can I interject something there? I, I've noticed that. That's a isn't that a bad look to beg the the Saudis to pump more oil while in like in Scotland John <laughs> Kerry is well, vowing to get rid of oil. We're going to get to that. That's okay. yes, we'll All get right. to the climate thing. But at the same time, right? 
And this is this is the contradiction. Biden has shut down the Keystone Pipeline. We learned last week that they're actually in re- reviewing this Michigan pipeline that for you know they're going to possibly shut that down. And and so the administration is pursuing policies that are actively actively causing gas prices to go up and and basically has taken the incentive or or the ability out of our hands, put it in someone else's. And I, I just don't think that's that's something that the American people are going to appreciate and they're going to hold this administration responsible for it. So that really has nothing, not much to do with infrastructure. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is going to, you know, take some of this money and put in charging stations around the country. I mean, that's fine. You know, three years, five, five years from now, it does not help them in the short term, how they can get a hold of gas prices. The only thing that they're, you know, considering and they haven't even done it yet is releasing oil from the strategic petroleum reserves, which they have not done yet. But I suspect they're going to have to do it in the near term because that's the, they have to demonstrate that they are, they are in touch with voters and their concerns about these rising prices and gas prices in particular is one that is exceedingly important to people. And it's also can be considered regressive in the sense that people have to drive. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that affects people every single day. Oh, that's true. And, and you know, it's not just driving. The cost of heating oil, and especially propane, uh, is way up. I think propane is up about 90% over last year. And in places like New Hampshire, which I want to talk about in a minute, uh, but really throughout rural America, people are dependent on propane for home heating. And I wonder what the political impact of that is going to be. And the administration has already sort of acknowledged that, hey, I think Jennifer Granholm did, um, Energy Secretary earlier this week, was like, hey, listen, you know, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad, folks. Home heating oil prices are going to are going they're up, and they're going to continue to go up in the short term. It's going to be very expensive this winter for a lot of folks. Yeah, I did want to bring up one thing, which uh, just because it came out this morning, which was that Senator Bukowski uh, in Alaska announced that she was going to run for re-election, twenty twenty two. No real surprise there, but um, she will be facing a Trump-backed challenger. Um, Trump has already endorsed, uh, I guess it's Alaska Commissioner uh, of Administration, Kelly Chewbacca. Murkowski is one of the seven Republican senators who voted to convict Trump, but she's the only one of those seven, it's interesting, that is actually up for re-election in 2022. You both uh, know her and followed her. Um, is this going to be a big test, and uh, is uh, is she vulnerable, do you think? Uh, I do think she's vulnerable. She is uh, obviously well-known there. She starts with a huge advantage in terms of name recognition, money, all that stuff. It, so for for any person uh, to challenge an incumbent, it always starts off uh, with, with an uphill battle. I don't know. I haven't seen her approval ratings in the state recently. Um, she's generally been well-liked, even though she has been really struck uh, the sort of, you know, independent record and she has – been seen as sort of anti-Trump and she's going to have a fight on her hands. There's no question that you just look around the country and you see, uh, you, you see where the grassroots of, of the Republican party is. And, um, I think, I think she should absolutely not take anything for granted. She's going to be in a real fight. Hmm. I have a different perspective, Andy. Shocking, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that she could run as an independent and win in that state. And the Republic, I think she could run as a Democrat and win in that state. And uh, Schumer would be happy to have her. The Trumpsters could overplay their hand here. Um, she, you know, she's done this before. She was beaten a primary. I think it was 2010 by a Tea Party candidate. Right. That's correct. Now, he didn't have anything like Donald Trump supporting him, but he had this Tea Party movement. And she ran, 
I think she ran a write-in candidate in November and won. Which was shocking. I mean, those writing campaigns are very tough to pull off. Strom Thurmond did it. I don't know any other senator who did it. I'm thinking back. But anyway, what I'm what I'm saying is that she's very popular. Her f- father, Frank, was popular. I think she's probably more popular in, in Alaska than Trump. Now, you th- that that would count Democratic voters in, in my calculation. But she's going to she's a shoo-in for any general election. And the Republican Party there is really trying to make sure she gets to the general election with the R on her name. They've fiddled with the nomination mechanisms. They're, they're, I think it's going to be a ranked choice voting thing now. If she loses, she could win because she'd be second on most of the ballots and supposedly the Trump candidate would be fourth. That's the idea. Anyway, what you could have have happened is what happened in Virginia. It could help show the Republicans a way through uh, without Trump. If Trump throws all of his chips in this uh, and loses, it it might help break the mystique of Trump. Mm -hmm. Right. I was just going to say that I think that in New Hampshire, where Chris Sununu has decided not to run, I thought that was very interesting as well. He was really the, the number one pick, I think, in the country. He's another scion, a political scion. His father was governor, yeah. Right. And now he's decided, instead of running for the Senate, to run for a fourth term as governor. And Scott Brown and Kelly Aote, who would be two of the more high-profile Republican candidates uh, who might run, have both said they are not going to run. So it's just another political tea leaf this week that, at least in my opinion, makes me think that the Republicans may have a harder time winning the Senate than some people think right now, especially when you add it to the kind of primary fights that we're likely to see in places like Alaska. I, I think the Sununu news was was huge. I mean, he was uh, he was the top choice for Republicans um, to run in that seat. And I think he would have been the the favorite to win. Um, but back to back to Murkowski, her approval rating is 41%. She's got 41% disapproval, 18% uh, undecided. And the Alaska GOP has endorsed her opponent. So again, <clears throat> just gives you a sense of, of where the lay of the land is there. I think she's going to be in a real battle. I think generally speaking, as, as this plays out, you know, we talked a little bit about the democratic party and the in, internal conflicts that they have to work out and whether they, you know, take their foot off the gas as far as social justice is concerned, at least initially my, my gut reaction would be that the landscape, unless it changes for the Democrats is going to be so bad that Republicans are going to be able to win some of these races with Trumpier candidates than, than they otherwise would have. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about Glasgow. Um, I'm told it's the Emerald Isles. Is that? No, no, that's, 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 it's Scotland. That was an Obama joke, Carl. Yeah, right. You missed that? Obama said, while we're here on the Emerald, in the Emerald Isles, let me quote the bard. Did he really? Yeah. Shakespeare, an Englishman. (laughs) He double, he double muffed it. So he was in Scotland, (laughs) said he was in Ireland and quoted an Englishman. Well, as my friend Michael Kelly once said about a column he wrote, I was I had the virtue of being wrong in all respect. <laughs> well, that's uh, this summit, this uh, COP twenty six summit, I guess it's called, is uh, scheduled to wrap up today. I go, it may go into extra innings. They're saying, but the big news is this: there was this agreement between China and the U.S. Um, saying that they would cooperate on limiting emissions, particularly when it comes to coal. And so John Kerry, uh, who is our special climate envoy, said, it's the first time China and the United States have stood up, the two biggest emitters in the world, and said, quote, we're going to work together to accelerate reductions. And then he went on to say, uh, quote, yesterday, because I think this must have happened on Thursday, was bigger than some people think, implying that this is probably less than 
the progressives wanted to see. Carl, the president made a pretty big deal of this summit going into it, but it seems a little bit like a bust. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much enthusiasm for it. Well, China, which is responsible for 30% of the uh, coal output, uh, coal emissions in the world, um, agreed in principle that they would look at this, but there's no timetable. There's no specifics. And China always keeps to their agreements. <laughs> well, that's the other part. What the climate claim, what the climate change activists are going to want is another summit to get acknowledgement. I guess is something. If you're, if this is your, if this is your big issue, but the activists outs who've been clamoring outside, making noise, uh, they want more than talk. They want specific quotas met, and they and they want to, they want the powers to say how they're going to do it. What is going to happen now, I think, because of what John Kerry himself said, and is that the United States is going to go back to financing um, some of these efforts because Donald Trump pulled the United States out of the climate, the Paris Climate Accord. And one of the things that would save the United States money because these countries, emerging economies, particularly India, which are big polluters, uh, the idea was that the wealthy nations should subsidize their getting off of coal and fossil fuels. And now it looks like the American taxpayers are going to be doing some of that again. That that seems concrete. So, Tom, is is this a political winner, though, for the White House? Yes and no. I mean, it is. When you look at the data, I mean, the environment, climate change is one of the top priorities of Democratic voters. I mean, it just is. And so in that sense, it, it helps Biden with the progressive wing of his party. They want to see him engaged on this. They want to see him leading on this. They want to see him reengaging with the world all of this stuff. So so in that sense, it is. More broadly speaking, the environment and climate change is pretty low. It's very low on the list of Republicans and independents are, you know, it's down the list behind the economy, education, healthcare, uh, those sorts of things. And so um, I don't think it's a big winner. It's going to move the needle for, for the administration uh, here at home. And certainly to the extent that Republicans can make the case that the Biden administration is pursuing policies, if whether they're climate-based or not, that are causing gas prices to go up, causing inflation, causing uh, you know lower growth at home, whatever the case may be, making us less energy independent. That could really backfire on them, actually, politically, in the midterms and in 2024. So it's a winner in the sense that it's the erogenous zone of the Democratic Party, one of the erogenous zones of the Democratic Party. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that visual. Yeah. But uh, but in terms of it actually producing uh, real sort of political movement here at home, I'm not sure it's going to do that. Larry Kudlow uh, really draws a, uh, a connection between the sort of environmental stuff and the inflation. Here's what he says. Uh, this was in a column he wrote this week. He said, a big chunk of this inflation story is energy. World oil prices up to $83 from $53, which is where they were when Biden was inaugurated. Gasoline up 60% to $3.42 from $2.15. You know what, Mr. President? There is a solution to this particular problem. It's called drill, drill, drill produce, produce, produce. For a lot of Americans, those pocketbook issues are going to be more important, I think, than an agreement with China over something that's going to happen in you know, 2035 or 2055 or all the way down the line, don't you think? Well, I, yeah, I don't disagree with you, Andy. The, 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 there's, two, there's two big picture things going on here, though. The first is that uh, Americans um, of any persuasion, whether they're, you know, ardent Sierra Clubbers or 
you know, work for an oil company are not too happy about the idea that the United States will make sacrifices that affect our economy, that lead to inflation and other disruptions, cost jobs when India and China are not. That's just not going to be a winning political issue and it doesn't even make sense. So everybody has to do this. And Americans want to see that again, regardless of their views of climate change. In terms of the the short-term inflation and and short-term job loss, though, this idea that to have a clean planet, jobs have to be dirty, that that we're willing to pollute and do other things that we know are wrong so we have so people don't lose their jobs in, in the in the oil patch. I think that argument has kind of run its course. I, I don't I don't think that the Republicans are gonna get as much traction from that as they have in the past. And and the the I think especially among young voters, you know, there's a perception, Andy, that you know, it took, you know, 400 years, well, from the dawn of the Industrial Revolution till now to completely befoul this planet. And cleaning it up is not going to, it's going to take a lot of jobs. And there may be in different sectors, but, you know, there are jobs in uh, solar farms, there are jobs in solar panels, there are jobs in environmental cleanup, there are, there are jobs in these areas. So I, I think on, on a macro level, that argument's starting to sound stale to voters. Yeah, I don't, I generally agree with that, but you know, I think most people are. You ask them, "Are you in favor of clean air and clean water?" Of course, they are. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Even uh, Republicans, independents, of course. But I think they also believe that we have to have a balanced, rational energy policy. We can't just be putting up windmills and solar panels and assume that that's going to to do the trick, which is what Democrats want us to do. I mean, John Kerry said at this thing, "There will be no coal in the United States by 2030." That's what he said at COP26. That's not balanced. That seems like fantasy land, okay? That is eight years away, and you're telling me there's not going to be any more coal in the United States, none produced, none burned. And to Carl's point, meanwhile, you know, what's China going to be doing? I mean, it's, it's, you know, so people look at that and think that's just, that's ridiculous. We should have a, and as, I mean, this was, this was the Republicans mantra for a long time, which I think from a messaging perspective was really smart. All of the above. We want all of the above. Tom, that was a Democratic view too. De- Democrats wouldn't right. argue with that for so years. So we want, we want, yes, we want wind. We want solar. We want, we want nuclear, by the way. Nuclear is like a. And we wanted energy independence. Remember when that was a bipartisan? Exactly. Exactly. And so unless the administration produces something like that, if they continue down this path where, you know, Biden is, there was a headline right when he went to, COP26, and he gave his speech that, uh, you know, he he was target. he introduced some new rule that was targeting the oil and gas industry. And at the same time, he was sort of begging them to to help him, you know, produce more energy. And it's just like th- that kind of incoherence from, you know, policy wise from the administration is going to get them in a lot of trouble. It is not, they need to have a much more coherent, cohesive and succinct policy than just saying, Eh, you know, no coal by 2030. That's not going to get it done. Andy, can I add one thing to that? Because I, I talked over Tom. He mentioned nuclear. If the Democratic Party official slash unofficial position, but it's it's liberal interest groups that it caters to are against all fossil fuels, gasoline, a natural gas, coal, and they won't embrace um, nuclear energy. I mean, you're going to have next year, Ford's going to have its new F-150 plug-in truck. It looks like the greatest vehicle invented in this country since Henry Ford did the Model A. But 
there are places in this country there's if where there's out no nuclear power and there's no natural gas, there's none of these other things. You're going to be driving that Ford F-150 and plugging it in a plugging station that's hooking to an electrical power plant that's burning coal to give you electricity. How is that helping the environment? Not to mention the the rare earth minerals that have to be mined to make the battery that goes in that truck, which is another issue. No, they don't want that either. They don't want mining right. either, Tom. And not to mention we're <laughs> almost completely dependent on China for that. So there are a lot of – it's a complicated thing. And I just think the administration has to be a little more um, practical and not so much pie in the sky in terms of – but again, that's what their base wants. Their base wants them to say there's no coal. They want them to say there will be no internal combustion engines. We will be all electric by you know whatever the number is. Well, I, I suggest if you're going to be all electric, you're going to need nuclear power plants. Well, let's let's talk about. Uh, we just a few minutes left here, but I want to talk about this January sixth investigation, um, which on Thursday, federal appeals court agreed to temporarily halt delivery of presidential records to the House committee. Um, this is generally regarded as a win for Trump. It slows things down. Uh, the appeal court will hold uh, oral arguments uh, before November thirtieth. I think the case could eventually go to the, the Supreme Court. You know, Tom, this is infuriated some progressives, but at the same time, isn't this pretty much business as usual? I mean, isn't this what presidents do when they're being investigated by Congress? Has there ever been a president who didn't invoke privilege at this point in an investigation? <laughs> no. Has there been a president who's invoked privilege when he's no longer in office, I think is the question that's being... Has there been a president who was no longer in office who thought he was still president? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, I think he's Remember, he's got an envoy to going to Kosovo, the, the non-president. <laughs> Look, I think this appeals court is all Democrats, uh, a Democrat appointees. And so I think this stuff is going to – and maybe it will go to the Supreme Court and we'll see. Uh, but I think Trump is not going to win the next decision on the appeals court is my, my take on it. Um, and I suspect these documents will be produced or by the, by the archivist – for the January 6th investigation. I don't know what they're going to show or whether it's going to change any minds. I, you know, the January 6th investigation is already in much the same territory as the impeachments. You know, I mean, 90% of it's the third, have, it's the third impeachment. Yeah. I mean, 90% of people, 95%, maybe 99% of people have their minds made up. Number one, if they're paying attention to it, they already have their minds made up about whether it's, it's a complete show trial or whether it's a legitimate inquiry to save our democracy. And that might be, I don't know, 5% of the population that's actually paying attention. The other 95% like don't know anything about it or have vaguely heard about it and don't know the inner workings. And Well, Todd, maybe you should watch a little bit more MSNBC because I have been watching MSNBC lately, which I, I do. I watch them all. I figure it's part of my job. And it is wall-to-wall uh, January 6th investigation coverage. So someone's paying attention to it. Well, right. Trump Trump leaving they're... office was bad for ratings for them. So, but now they, they... as he will tell you himself. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> so, but now they can they can get their audience ginned up again uh, uh, on Trump. It's a it's it's like a drug, I guess. You need more and more of it. Carl, do you think that? I mean, do you, do you really view this as sort of a show trial? You think there's no uh, legitimate uh, inquiry that could be made into the January 6th? I think there should have been an inquiry made into it. I this the both you know the the Republicans pulling pulling out of it was not a good thing. Uh, they did Pelosi wouldn't let them have some of their flamethrowers on the committee, but she put she put Adam Schiff on it. I mean, it was it was from the beginning it's ridiculous, uh, just a partisan exercise. And uh, the House Speaker and the uh, House 
minority leader have all everything to do with that. And it's a shame. Uh, they've, I think they've mismanaged it from the start. Having said that, things are coming out that are interesting. And, and some of it's reporting by the Washington Post and New York Times and various authors, and some of it's from the, from the witnesses. But there, there's an interesting tension, you guys, and that's this. So d- did Donald Trump really cause this? The Washington Post had a piece recently, you know, all of Trump's tweets, all of the things he said and did. And uh, the thought occurred to me that if you believed Donald Trump, I'm talking about you're an American citizen, that this election was stolen, not only stolen, but willfully stolen, that Biden was part of it, that the Democrats did this, they did this, they intended to do it and they did it. And as Trump said, there was statistically no possible way he could have lost the election. Now, I don't believe any of those things, but but if the if the people who believed Donald Trump and Trump was saying them believe them, it seems to me they have a right, they have an obligation to storm the Capitol. I don't know about that, but okay, <laughs> <laughs> an obligation to storm the Capitol. If you think that our democracy has already been been usurped, if you believe that, you would do things that that, that, that you know they might not all be statutory. Hang the vice president. Well, but what I'm getting to is is this: as this goes on, this inquiry, and this is, I think, the Demo- the Democrats' goal. Trump looks worse, but I think the people who responded to his call are less culpable. And to me, the the Democrats want it both ways. They want to make these people into monsters who stormed the Capitol, but they want to blame Trump. And I think at some point you have to pick your storyline, because if Trump's to blame, those people are less to blame. He's the, he's the sitting commander in chief. He says over and over and over and over again that he has proof that the election was stolen from him and you, the people, have been disenfranchised. Well, staging a riot at the Capitol seems like a logical response to that if you believed it. So I think a long answer, but I think under unraveling this and getting to the point of what happened, I think the American, it's very important. I just wish it hadn't been done as a partisan exercise. Well, I'll just tack on to that. I mean, this is, this is the problem. Nancy Pelosi... I think, ensured that this was, it was always going to be politicized. There's no question, right? But she ensured its demise when she refused, for the first time ever this has ever been done, right? Refused to allow the minority, their appointments on this committee, just rejected them. And and once that was done, McCarthy pulled out, they took their ball and went home. And it was just, you know, and then she appoints Adam Kinzinger and you know, Liz Cheney as the vice chairman of the committee. I mean, just it's ridiculous. Now, now it is just a complete joke. Well, she in, in so doing too, she ensured Liz Cheney's defeat in her primary. Oh, Carl, <laughs> Liz Cheney was going to lose well before she was appointed to this committee. Well, she's going to lose worse now. <laughs> you may be right about that, but for 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 those reasons, and I, I, you know, looking back, I don't know why Nancy Pelosi, you know, Jim Jordan and Banks, they're going to do their thing. That's that's part of what. Congress, you know, everybody has their grand standards, Adam Schiff and the like. And it's like, what was she so afraid of that she wouldn't allow these guys on the committee? She'd be in a much better position if from a a whole different, a bunch of different angles, if she had just let the Republicans appoint their committee members and yes, they're going to do their grandstanding and their thing or whatever, but they would have, they would at least be able to say that, you know, we have members and representatives from the Republican party on this committee who, who are getting to have their say. And at the end of the day, guess what? We, they were overwhelmed by the evidence that we collected or whatever, um, the witnesses that we called. And, and, but 
that's all gone now. It's not going to happen. Well, Tom, or or, con- or conversely, if she was going to exercise veto power over Republicans she didn't like, Kevin McCarthy should have been allowed to do the same for the Democrats. I mean, if if that was her position, then then that suggests something else, that the two leaders agree and everybody agrees on all the members of the commission, which to me would have actually been even better than having these, these uh, you know, flamethrowers from each side. How about they just follow the rules of Congress and they don't do unprecedented things? Well- I'm saying out of 435 members, you couldn't find a dozen who aren't known as, you know, uh, demagogues. I think you probably could have. Small, small and shrinking list, I think. But, (laughs) (laughs) well, we're going to have to leave it there. So I want to thank Carl Cannon and Tom Bevan. Um, We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. Email me at takeaway at realclearpolitics.com. Let me know if you've got a good idea for our next big bet. I think we need another one. Um, <laughs> Double or nothing. I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Get your free subscription to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. That is one of a few free newsletters you can get at uh, realclearpolitics.com, including the Real Clear Politics Takeaway newsletter, which will keep you up to date on this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.